Welcome to Dad Talk Today. The podcast for dads facing some of the toughest moments of their lives. We are here to walk with men through divorce, keep them connected to their kids, help them understand their rights, and work for change in family law courts. Moms, you are always welcome too. We are all about advocating for shared parenting and doing what is best for our kids. Let's get started. Here is your host, Eric Carroll. Hey everybody, welcome to Dad Talk Today. I'm your host, Eric Carroll, joined by Melissa Isaac and Jeff Morgan. And today I am so honored, guys. We have Colonel Alan West on the podcast. Colonel, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. I just want to thank everyone out there in your audience for all of their thoughts and their prayers. It's been a pretty uh, horrific month this past month for me because of that motorcycle accident. But there before the grace of God, I am here with you all. And uh, it's a pleasure and it's an honor. Yes, sir. And it hasn't been long since that motorcycle accident. That's uh, to see you up and going again so quick, man. You got some, you got a lot of tenacity in there. And I respect yeah. that. You know, I'm, I'm just a Georgia boy like you. And, and sometimes we don't even realize that we're hurt. And so we just continue <laughs> to press on. But yeah, it was just the 23rd of May. It was Memorial Day weekend. Uh, we were coming back from Austin, Texas after a rally down at the state capitol. And uh, I got hit from behind by a motorcyclist uh, behind me because of a car had jumped over in front of me. And, uh, you know, no one survived a motorcycle accident at 75 miles per hour on an interstate highway. So it's a, it's a blessing that God has spared my life. Yes, sir, it is. We're glad to have you here. And I'm, I'm glad you made it through. That's, a, that's definitely a miracle. Well, Colonel, I, I was watching a video earlier today that you made back on Father's Day, and you was talking about when you was born here in Georgia, yeah. um, that 77% of the black homes had both mom and dad in them. Where do you think we've went wrong today? Well, it's very simple, everyone. And, and this is the real conversation we should be having in the United States of America. It was the Great Society programs of Lyndon Baines Johnson that were implemented as part of his war on poverty in 1965. When Lyndon Johnson came up with the unbrilliant idea, and I think it was intentional, that a woman that has a child out of wedlock will get a check from the government, no matter how many children she has out of wedlock. But the caveat was that a working man could not be in the home. So what ended up happening is that Lyndon Johnson and the progressive socialist left came in and exited the responsible black man in the family. And that has just taken the community down a very, very bad road uh, to perdition that we are experiencing today when you look at the breakdown of our inner city communities. So really what you had, I mean, this is what you, what I look at what you had, uh, Colonel West, as one of the greatest gifts a parent can give to a child being raised in an intact family. And you don't see that as much anymore. And so I'm wondering when you talk about the inner cities, do you think that a lot of what's going on can be displaced rage because of children being brought up in one parent homes or broken homes? Well, without a doubt. And I'm not trying to you know, offer any disparagement against you know, mothers that are out there doing the best that they can. Right. But when you have the balance of the mother and the father in the home, that is what a family is all about. And you go back to the Bible and it says in Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way that they should grow so that when they grow old, they shall not depart from it. And I'll use my life as an example. Now, my dad was a World War II veteran. 
a man who went and served his country when his country did not afford him all the rights and privileges it did others. But yet at the age of 15, he sat me down on the steps of his house that he had bought and ended up owning because he paid it off. And he said, there's no greater honor than to wear the uniform of the United States of America. And this enlisted corporal from World War II, whose oldest son, uh, my, my older brother, was a Lance Corporal in the Marines in Vietnam, he challenged me at 15 to be the first officer in the family. And so it was just an incredible bit of pride for me on 31 July 1982 at the University of Tennessee to have that corporal, Herman West Sr., standing on one shoulder and my mom standing at the other shoulder and pinning on the second lieutenant bars of an officer in the United States Army. That's what happens when you have that strong, positive role model. But when you have that void, you know, kids, especially young men, are going to go look for, you know, something to belong to. And sadly, what we have seen happen is they go out and belong to the gangs. They go out and become part of the street. And look at what has been going on in the last three weekends in the city of Chicago that really no one is talking about. You're talking about over 300 shootings. And I believe close to about 30 people have been killed, to include mm -hmm. a 10-year-old in the city of Chicago. Right, right. Melissa, um, I'd like to talk with you about your military service in a bit here, but Melissa, do you have anything that you want to add? Yeah, I was, ask, I was going to ask on that line. We know that fatherlessness is a huge problem. We, the research shows it's a problem. So on a legislative level, how open are other lawmakers to addressing the issue of fatherlessness? Because it really seems like when every time we try to address that issue, you know, you, you have some feminists that come in and say, no, 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 you're attacking single moms. So how open have legislators even been to addressing fatherlessness? Well, I, once again, Melissa, I will tell you that too often what we have uh, become in the United States of America, we go run into government to solve every problem. Mm -hmm. The problem that the community has to solve itself. Uh, because the community trusted government, and that's how you went from 77% two-parent household in the black community when I was born in 1961 to 24% today. So I think the thing is that the community has to look at itself and admit this problem and correct it itself and not depend on any you know, state, uh, state, uh, you know, house member or senator or U.S. member uh, or, or any mayor to fix it. This has to be the community. And you know who else? It has to be the church that does it. The feminist movement, once again, you know, they went out there speaking against the strong two parent family. That's not saying that we're against a woman that is raising a child on her own because of whatever circumstances. But if you look at success, success comes without a doubt when you have those two parents in there. And one thing that people need to pay attention to, when you go to the Black Lives Matter website and look at what they believe in, they say the traditional nuclear family, those mother and father, two-parent household, that's a representation of white supremacy. So what this organization that is calling itself Black Lives Matter is going out and they're not even for the one thing that kept the black community strong through some of the most horrific parts of our history here in the United States of America. Yeah, impact family. You made a good point. You said that basically these mothers are financially incentivized not to have the father or their husband in the home. So until we take away that financial incentivization, do you think yeah. that these these the community will address it themselves? No, they won't because it's. Just, 
I, I like to, to use this term, I learned it from a drill sergeant. It's called a self-licking ice cream cone. So if you continue to, to have that incentive out there, guess what? You're going to continue to get that type of behavior. So right. uh, I think that that's what has to change. If there's anything that can be done from a legislative side of the house, that's what it is, is to stop the tyranny, the economic enslavement of the welfare nanny state. Mm-hmm. So, Colonel West, I'd like to add a little bit something to that as well. Um, what, what I found is that it's not necessarily that the legislature can solve some of these problems, but the legislator has created some of these problems. For example, if you, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you look at the issue. One of the big things that I've talked about repeatedly has been the issue of unilateral no-fault divorce. When you go into a court and a judge says, well, if somebody wants a divorce, they will get the divorce no matter what. And then when you have the incentives that actually, as Melissa was talking about, um, are government provided that help the divorce, and a person who says, wait a minute, I don't want this divorce. I want to be there for my kids every day. I got married with the understanding it would be for life, and the state says, that's tough. So that's where I say that the legislature, as you were mentioning, has created the problems. And some of these problems have to be addressed by by going back to the legislature and repealing bad, and I would even argue, unconstitutional laws. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I agree with it. The, uh, the number one uh, contributor to the progressive socialist left, also known as the Democrat Party, is the Trial Lawyers Association. So I think a lot of these things emanate from their own uh, self-serving interest. But, you know, recently, three weeks ago, I was named as the interim president and CEO of the Hope Center, which mm-hmm. is a collaborative building of about 60 plus ministries right here in North Texas in the city of Plano. And we have Christian uh, counseling and ministry services that are there. And one of the things they do is, is the marriage counseling. And I think that that, again, is where the Christian community can step in and start saying, you know, it does not have to be so. Just the same as we don't have to believe in in killing unborn babies as a means of birth control. We can have a Christian community that stands up against that because, you know, your very first inalienable right that Thomas Jefferson wrote into the Declaration of Independence 244 years ago this week is life. And so there's so many things we need to look at that aspect of life that over the years has been perverted by people because of their ideological agenda. So I think that we have good, fruitful lives when we have strong, intact families. We have good, fruitful lives when we fight to continue to have strong, intact families. And we have good, fruitful lives when we are families that are raising our children up to be strong and teaching them about the American dream. Colonel, I know you grew up in an intact family. Could you tell us a little bit about the influence that your parents had on you? Well, look at where I am today. Uh, you know, like I said, a, a, a man that was born in 1920, a mother that was born in 1931, grew up down in South Georgia. Things weren't that great for, you know, black men and women growing up in, in, in South Georgia in the 1930s, 1920s. But yet my mother and father both served the United States of America. My dad uh, served in World War II. My mom did over 25 years civilian service with the Marine Corps headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. They are both buried. Uh, one man, one woman together in Marietta National Cemetery because of the service that they gave to this great nation. And so that's what they taught us. And it wasn't just the parents that I had, but their friends, the church family that I had, the people that surrounded me. You know, the lesson that my mom taught me that the measure of a man is not how many times you get knocked down, how many times you get back up. 
you know, a man will stand for something or else he'll fall for anything. People will know you by the company that you keep. One of my dad's favorite sayings was that never read your own press and never drink your own tub water or else you become full of yourself. And so it's all of those incredible lessons that you learn, these, this wisdom, this discernment that enables you to grow up in this inner city neighborhood and be a part of the American dream so that you can become a lieutenant colonel in the army when your dad was just a corporal. You can command a battalion in combat in the army when your dad was just an enlisted soldier in combat. You can grow up and become a member of the United States House of Representatives. That's the American dream. And when I hear people talk about the dreamers, all of our children have dreams. And our, our parents are supposed to talk to their children about their dreams and help them to accomplish them, get them on the road to success. And that's what my parents did. I love it. You, you so know, go ahead. Uh, you, we talk about, you know, with the, with the Black Lives Matter and what's going on nowadays. But when you mention um, the fatherless issue inside of the black community, that becomes, oh, you're just deflecting from the real problem. Why is it that this problem that is so rampant, they can't just say, this is a problem. It, it's always got to be that it's a deflection. It's obviously well, because the, the, the problem does not align with their ideological agenda. And that's why I challenge the people in the audience to go out and read their website, read what they stand for. They don't care about any of the issues that are facing the black community right now. The greatest civil rights issue uh, that the black community is facing right now is the issue of equality of opportunity. And equality of opportunity only comes when you have a good quality education. And so you have an organization that doesn't even care about educational freedom. My parents made the choice for me. They did not send me to the two public schools that are in our neighborhood. And I grew up in the old Fourth Ward neighborhood, the exact same one that produced Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. They did not send me to C.W. Hill. They did not send me to John Pope. They sent me to Our Lady of Lourdes Catholic School, which was the oldest black Catholic parish in the city of Atlanta. And it was located right across the street from Ebenezer Baptist Church. But they understood the importance and, and how an education unlocks all the doors of opportunity and how important it is to get that from the early get-go. But yet you don't hear anybody from Black Lives Matter talking about education opportunity scholarships like you saw President Trump present to that nine-year-old girl from the inner city of Philadelphia who was there with her single mom at the State of the Union address. You don't hear them talking about uh, the opportunity zones, economic opportunity zones. You don't hear them talking about Margaret Sanger. If everything's supposed to be about racism and, and white supremacy, here is a woman that founded an organization, Planned Parenthood. She was an avowed white supremacist. She was an avowed racist. She spoke at Ku Klux and rallies. She referred to blacks as weeds and undesirables. But yet, you never heard them talk about the fact that Planned Parenthood has over 70% of their clinics in black communities. As a matter of fact, I called for it. You know, Hillary Clinton received the Margaret Sanger Award. But yet, I haven't heard anyone talk about Hillary Clinton being you know, a statue of her being cast down or her apologizing right. or whatever. So this is all about an ideological agenda. And and I need, you know, I'm the only person on this podcast with a permanent tan. I need my white brothers and sisters to stand up and speak the truth and not allow people to box you in by calling something that you're not. This July the 4th, Independence Day, in 1867, the Republican Party of Texas 
was founded by 150 blacks. So why are we having people run around and calling Republicans racist when those people in 1867 found out in 1865 that they were free because of an 1863 an emancipation proclamation that was signed by the very first Republican president. So if we don't know our history, which is why they're trying to destroy it, their ideological agenda becomes the new truth. Makes sense. Colonel, let's talk about some of our soldiers and um, the, just the concept of intact families. A lot, and you've had deployments. Um, we have a lot of soldiers on deployment who receive Dear John letters or they come home to um, you know, sometimes wives who have cheated on them or um, come home to empty houses. Well, tell us a little bit about your experience with that and how you saw that situation affecting these soldiers. Well, I will tell you back uh, some years ago, back during the Clinton administration, it was the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Monday, who issued an order saying that he did not want to have any first term, first enlistment, married or uh, married enlisted or officer marines and the whole purpose of that was he said you know you have these young marines coming in like i said enlisted or officers and they got deployments and these deployments are six to eight months and and all the training and everything and that puts a lot of stress on these young families and uh he was absolutely vilified and attacked by the secretary of defense at that time les aspen and also uh president clinton and he was told to rescind that order. But General Monday was right. You know, when you look at some of these young people that are going out there, they're not mature enough, they're not ready enough, and they go and they get married early on, and then they have these deployments. And when you look at what is happening in our military, how we have decreased the manpower and the strength of our military, but yet the combat deployments are continuing to, to increase. Uh, and everybody in the military is not a trigger puller. So a lot of our trigger pullers, the people out there on the front lines in combat situations, especially our, our special operation forces, six, seven, eight combat tours of duty. That puts a lot of stress on the family. And, and one of the things we have to look at is how do we rebuild our military so that we can reduce a lot of that stress, not just on the soldier, sailor, airman, marine, or coast guardsman, but on the family as well. So you've seen an incredible rise of divorces, which means that there are children out there that are now part of broken families. And, you know, back in the uh, early 70s, you had close to 70, a little over 70%, I think 73% of the members of the United States House of Representatives in the Senate that have served in our military. Mm -hmm. Today, that number is down to 19%. And again, it comes back to legislators and the legislation that they are out there uh, making and the decisions that they're making. They're not making smart decisions when it comes to our military and our national security because so many of them have never been in that position. So we need to get back to the point where we are reducing the amount of combat tools and deployment. Sadly, there are enemies out there, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, Islamic jihadism. And we have to be at the forefront, the tip of the spear. We have to work with our allies as well, but we've got to rebuild our military so that we can reduce that combat stress on the military family. But it really seems like Congress, their main issue when it comes to military is sexual assault. Now, everybody agrees, of course, sexual assault has nowhere in the military at all. But a lot of our, I think especially our male soldiers, Marines, our airmen, you know, just the allegation of sexual assault is enough to derail their career, is right. enough to flag them, it stops promotions. So 
you know, when we look at issues within the family, it just seems like a lot of spouses know, well, all I have to do is make the allegation. And this is a career ender. In fact, you know, I, I'm a divorce attorney by trade. And we've had some clients that have come in and they have the text messages. They have recordings of their spouses doing this. But do you think that the way that Congress has responded or, or enacted legislation for military is actually beneficial to the military family? Or has it just created a monster? Well, it has created a monster because you have certain senators like uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand uh, in New York and others on the Senate side. And again, they have never served a day in the military, but yet some of these people sit on the Armed Services Committee and they're put in charge of uh, you know hearings and in charge of committees and subcommittees and things of this nature. And they're attacking this issue from an ideological agenda standpoint and not really going down and talking to the people on the ground. And so what ends up happening is that the military becomes so risk averse because the last thing you want is the call or the attention being brought against you and your uh, installation or your service mm -hmm. by some senator or what have you, and they overreact. I tell you one of the things, and, and you know, I've talked to a lot of uh, my friends still in the military, uh, when they took down the don't ask, don't tell, you've seen a lot of same sex, sexual harassment and sexual assaults that for whatever reason, a lot of people don't want to talk about. And so, you know, it, 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 it's that ideological agenda aspect of everything that is dominating common sense. And I think we have to get away from that, especially in our military, especially when it comes to our national security. Colonel West, can you talk a little bit about how some of these issues also impact military effectiveness and people are on deployment. I've heard, I've heard soldiers talk about this. I was in the military, but um, I wasn't in combat or anything, but I've, I've had friends in combat. And when they get one of these letters that Melissa was just talking about, where they have troubles on the home front. And the concern is how does it impact military effectiveness? And how does it impact a person's ability to protect the man on his right, the man on his left, to execute plans? Um, do some of these issues become almost national security issues in a sense? Um, well, can you comment a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Let me give you an example. When I deployed to Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, uh, there for you know six months, First Infantry Division, and you know I've got you know maybe about seven or eight letters because we were out in the deep desert, uh, and I only got uh, I believe two phone calls in the entire six months. And the phone call AT and T tent, you had to stand out in the hot sun, wait for a long time, and maybe you got about a minute and a half, two minutes. Now, fast forward to 2005, 2007, when I'm in Afghanistan, I've retired, but I'm a civilian military uh, advisor to the Afghan army. Now I can get on the computer and I can you know, sit there in my room and I can live chat back to my wife and my daughters and what have you. Now, a lot of people say, man, that's awesome that you know we got the troops that can be in touch with their family and everything, but guess what happens? All of a sudden, Johnny, or Jane, they come back in from a, a patrol or an operation or a long day of duty, and they get on and they talk to their spouse or their boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, and then they get to hear about, well, you know, this just broke in the house, or these bills need to be paid, and I don't know how to do this, or like sadly you say, you get the bad news story. That person becomes combat ineffective because their mind is still over there thinking about all the problems in the home instead of thinking about the issues of going out and being on patrol and protecting their buddy's flight. So this whole thing about, you know, being able to bring so much information and technology there to the troop that's, uh, you know, deployed, 
it can be a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing. We have to be very careful about that. I'm glad that, you know, we, we bring a little bit of home. But when you're sitting there at Kandahar, Af Afghanistan, on the air base there, and you can go to Burger King. You can go to the little Dairy Queen and get, you know, peanut buster parfait. Or like I said, you can go to the room and sit down and, and go and Skype and chat with the, with the family back home. Sometimes you need that separation from, from being back home so that you stay focused and you understand your mission and what you have to accomplish and achieve there uh, in that combat zone. So I think that, again, it is important for us to, to have folks that have been in the combat, been in those situations, and understand those pros and cons for things mm -hmm. like that. Can you discuss a little bit about the PTSD that uh, service members experience? Um, I, I'm I know that you've seen it among your own soldiers and um, you know, the effect that it has on them and what happens when they come back and they have the PTSD and how that also impacts their relationship with the family. And, and yeah. we've even seen it where the PTSD is used against uh, a, a service member, man or woman in, uh, in family court. This is the dangerous person because he or she has PTSD. Well, and, well that's why, that's why I'm, I'm glad that, you know, down in, in South Florida, when I was a member of Congress, we started the soldiers court the, uh, because the veterans court. Uh, and you also have that here in North Texas because you, there, there are a lot of judges out there that have been in the military. You know, some of these JAG officers, Judge Advocate General Corps mm -hmm. officers, that when they retire, we need them to go into the civilian sector and be able to adjudicate some of these cases where our men and women are involved. But, you know, when I was a, a battalion commander in the 4th Infantry Division, we were getting ready to deploy over to Iraq in 2003. There were only two people in this entire battalion of about 500, little over 500 soldiers who have ever been in combat. That was myself and my command sergeant major. And the thing that I tried to stress to our soldiers before they deployed is that the person that you are here, somehow you got to try to figure out how you leave that person here. When you take that first step to start getting on that airplane that's going to yeah. deploy you to a combat zone. And then the other thing is that you need to have enough decompression time so that the person that you had to be over in that combat zone, you can leave them in that combat zone so that when you step off of the plane coming back, you can once again assimilate back in and be the person that you're here in, uh, in stateside, especially with the families. And you have to understand how things have changed within that family or things have changed around you. So I think that one of the things that we don't do a good job of, and, and I, I think that we've tried, but we try to rush guys out of the combat zone and get them back home. because We want to get them back. We want to get them reunited with the family. But you need to have a little bit of that decompression time where soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Coast Guardsmen, they sit down and they talk with each other. They sit down and they kind of just hit the, the power down button so that, you know, they can completely flush all of that out of their system. Some people may not need it. Some people may need 24 hours. Some people may need... 72 hours. Some people may, may need a week, but we need to take that in consideration instead of saying, okay, we're going to pull you out. You've got your transition with the incoming unit. We're going to get your equipment taken care of, and boom, we're going to get you on the first thing going back home. And I think that that's one of the things we have to look at going forward. So that movie Indivisible that came out, I think it was a year and a half ago about the chaplain. Did you see that movie, the chaplain that went over there to serve the troops? And then he was actually dealing with it on the way back. It almost led to his divorce and and, uh, and I mean, they worked through it, but it was a very traumatic 
uh, very difficult time for them. And to yeah. see a person who's committed to Christ, who's committed to serving people go through that, um, it, it brings a lot of that home because if people don't have the Lord in their lives, it makes it even more difficult. How do they respond to some of these things? Well, you know, my uh, chaplain when I was a battalion commander was a young man by the name of Ken Sharp, and he was a brand new chaplain, uh, first lieutenant, you know, and I remember sitting and talking with him, and I told him, chaplain, you're going to be the greatest combat multiplier in our unit because our our guys are going to talk to you about things they're not going to come to me about. They're not going to come to the first sergeant or the company commander or their platoon sergeant about. They're going to come to you, and they're going to look to you for that spiritual uh, reinforcement to let them know that everything's going to be okay. And, you know, Chaplain Sharp, like I said, he was a brand-new chaplain. He was really nervous about that. He was really concerned. He said, you know, sir, I don't know if I can do it. I said, Chaplain, you got to do it. I said, Chaplain, you know, my personal weapon is my 9-millimeter. The personal weapon of the others are the M16. Your personal weapon is your Bible. And if you're not out there with your Bible, if you're not reinforcing and, and bolstering the spiritual fitness of our troops in, in these tough times, then you're not worth the salt. And so I need to know right now if you're going to be able to step up and do that. And it was very interesting. I mean, he was real tentative early on. But the next thing you know, I see Chaplain Sharp out there. No matter what time the patrol is going out, he's out praying with that patrol. And the next thing I know, he's going out with certain patrols to go outside the wire. And so when I look at chaplains, guess what? No one was comforting him. He was out there giving himself. And so, you know, that movie is indicative of the fact that you also need to have someone that's caring for the man of God. Right. And so yeah. that's what I think is so important, that our chaplains also have a battle buddy. You know, their ultimate battle buddy is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But they need to have a battle buddy that they can go to to talk about their concerns as well. So I, I think that that was a good aspect that that movie brought out. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Can you talk a little bit about the issue of veteran suicide? We've heard a lot about it. Um, there, there are many people who who say that twenty over twenty veterans a day commit suicide. Um, many of them, we've also heard too, it's because specifically due to issues of family court. We've heard veterans say that as tough as combat was, nothing has been more traumatic than family courts. Uh, do you know a little bit more about the suicide uh, of veterans and? You know, sure. maybe ways that we could address that. Yeah, if, you know, I, I really messed up my hand uh, in the in the accident, but I normally wear a uh, a simple black ring on my trigger finger here. Uh, it's called the hashtag twenty two kill ring, and it deals with the fact that on average per day in the United States of America, twenty to twenty two of our veterans are taking their lives, and it's a sad statistic. One of the great faith-based organizations here in the United States of America that's dealing with that is an organization called the Mighty Oaks Foundation. And it's yes. headed up by a former recon Marine by the name of Chad Robichaud. Very dear close friend of mine. I mean, Chad flew out here from Colorado to be in, in, at home here with me uh, just about three days after my accident. That's how close wow. we are. And so the uh, that's what we need. We need to have more of those faith-based veteran service organizations that are going in there and strengthening our troops to, 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 to let them know that they can get through this. And again, it comes through the, the veterans court. We need to have more of those veterans courts that are out there so that we have those judges that understand that perspective of the veteran and don't just come down and slam them hard, but try to put themselves in, the, in their shoes because they've walked in those same boots. So I, I think that it is important because it's a stain 
on our nation. It is. The, the men and women who said that they will go out and make the last full measure of devotion for us are coming home to take their own lives. That's showing that this nation is not putting their arms around them in their most dire time of need. And Colonel, that, that kind of brings me to a really near and dear issue to my heart, the resources that they have once they get back from the military. Back in 2013, my dad died at the VA. All he had was a kidney stone, 63 years old. I will never accept um, something was going on there. Same VA, um, three different people that year were waiting to get mental health services at the VA. They couldn't get in. They went and committed suicide. I think yeah. we need to get get something going. Do you have any suggestions or any insights on something that we can do to make better resources for our veterans? Yeah. First and foremost, no veterans should be denied hospitalization or medical services at any hospital. Veterans should not be told that they're relegated to go to a VA hospital. They can go, should be able to go to any hospital in the United States of America. That's what we owe uh, to our veterans. And I think that we have to start getting to the point where we look at our VA healthcare system and we need to make it more specialized, more specialized to those injuries, more specialized to those things that affect our, our veterans and, and the, our service members. But for your father to have had a kidney stone and to have passed in a VA hospital, your father shouldn't have been able to go to any medical facility uh, within of his choice. And so that's why I think it's so important. And, and I applaud President Trump for, you know, establishing that legislation that deals with veterans' choice for their uh, their medical uh, issues. And so that's the big step that we need to have. Definitely. And that was one of the things that caught my eyes with Trump when he very first started talking about that. I mean, the day before my dad died, he went there and tried to get admitted. And they sent him, they said, there's a red roof down the road for $75. We can't see you tonight. He died the next night. And yeah. it's, it's sad. It's sad. The very people that fought for our country. Yeah, it's unconscionable. Shouldn't be happening in America. But yet, but yet, think about this. You have elected officials, politicians, that say illegal immigrants should be able to come into the United States of America and get free health care. Where are their priorities? Mm -hmm. Yep. You got something you want to add, Melissa? No. Uh, you know, I have a lot of clients. Um, who have gone through VA, a lot of combat clients. I'm also a JAG in the National Guard here in Alabama. So, you know, we get to hear it sort of on both sides. And I think a lot of our soldiers feel abandoned. Uh, I say soldiers um, or airmen, usually who we deal with, um, they feel abandoned. They feel um, that this country has turned their back on them, especially when they come back and they're weathering a divorce and the PTSD is used against them. These, their service is used against them. Um, and you know, unfortunately, we don't have veterans courts for divorces. It's for, you know, for criminal things, but not for divorces. So it would be nice to expand those veterans courts out to to encompass divorces because you've got these guys that are losing everything. They're losing their homes. Um, they lost their jobs. Um, they lose their children. And that's the big one. I mean, a lot of these soldiers or a lot of these veterans, rather, who are killing themselves at least 22 a day, a lot of them are tied up in family court or have child access issues. So these are real issues that, you know, that we need to be addressing that we're simply not right now. Well, I tell you, Melissa, uh, you know, that's one of the initiatives you ought to get started, mm -hmm. you know, and in veterans courts uh, over to the family court system. Uh, and I'm sure there are a lot of people that would join arm to arm with you. Uh, I got dear friends here in North Texas 
uh, Lieutenant Colonel James Angelino, uh, does a lot of work in the veterans courts here in North Texas, great friends back in South Florida. So I think you guys need to, you know, get, get the call together and, and make a change and make a difference. And like I said, the legislators, the politicians may not be the ones to do it, but you guys can. Yeah. You're right. Colonel West, can I say something on Melissa's behalf? Because she won't say this, but I will. You know, we Melissa's law firm is called Protecting Men. And I can tell you that there are many, many people who admire her because, yes, she's a divorce attorney, but her purpose is to protect. And, and you know, she's gone so far as her law firm has actually purchased a house, renovated a house, because sometimes men can't see their kids because they've gone through this stuff. They've lost their money. They've lost everything. And the courts say, well, you don't have a fit place to meet with your kids. And she has a house that men can meet with their kids. They can stay there for free. She pays the bills. And um, so she's a person that's putting a lot of the stuff into action. And, and I thought, you know, and Melissa, I, I may be embarrassing you right now, but I thought if we could have divorce attorneys like this everywhere, what a difference it would make in, 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 in our lives, in our children's lives, in our families' lives. Maybe there would be a lot more people that would be on the verge of divorce that would actually come together. And, um, you know, there could be a lot better things that would take place than what we see as being a completely often unjust, very unjust and brutal and cruel uh, system that you have to have a, a lady who was saying, because of her own experiences growing up, I am here to protect men because she experienced that by not having her father in her life. And, and again, Melissa, I've said this many times before, I so admire, I so appreciate you. Yeah. I mean, you're on a pedestal in my mind, uh, but I, I don't know if Colonel West knew that about you. So I just thought I'd, I'd add that and brag on yeah. you versus you bragging well, on yourself. I think, that, I think that's a great point to close on is that this country is looking for servant leadership. Yeah. And for whatever reason, uh, we have gotten to the point in our 244 years of existence where we have succumbed to self-serving individuals. Uh, we have politicians. We don't have statesmen and stateswomen. Mm -hmm. We have people that are no longer citizen legislators, but they're just the people that are going up there looking for their own special interests and self-interest. So mm -hmm. I applaud you, Melissa. I give you a hearty airborne and a thumbs up, jump master. Uh, because that's what we need. We need more people of that model who are willing to step out and say, it doesn't have to be this way. And let me give you an example. Let me give you a model. Let's truly talk about how we can serve people mm -hmm. and not just destroy people and not just make people dependent, but truly help them to be independent and help them to live great and fruitful lives and pursue their happiness in the greatest nation that the world has ever known. Colonel, do you want to add anything about what you're running for in in July? Well, see, it's not about me. See, I just told I, you I, I understand that, but then you want to try to make it about me? No, no, uh, I'm not I'm not trying to do that. No, I'm tell us your vision. The, sure, you know, I'm ready to be the chairman of the Republican Party of Texas. And again, you know, I look at where we are in the United States of America, and it comes down to two simple choices: either either you stand for the rule of law, or you're going to stand for the rule of the mob. Either you believe in the equality of opportunity or you believe in the equality of outcomes. Either you believe in the strength, the sovereignty, the rights, the liberties, and the freedoms of the individual, or you believe in the collective subjugation of the individual, the government. And I believe that now is the time for us to make that clear delineation of the two paths that we can take in America. 
Either we continue down the path of liberty or we turn and we take the path of tyranny. Mm -hmm. And that's where we are. And that's the discussion that I want to have here in the great state of Texas. And I want that discussion to permeate all across America. And Colonel, you might get to meet Eric and Melissa in person down there as well. They're talking about coming in and come I'll on. be there for sure. Come on. We, we love to have you. We'll do it. Yes, sir. Right. Planning on it. Colonel, can you tell everybody where to find you if they want to keep up with what you've got going on? Sure. Uh, our campaign website is west4texas.com, west4texas.com. And if you want to follow what I'm doing just about every single day, it's theoldschoolpatriot.com, Facebook, Twitter, and also Instagram. So God bless you and thank you. All right, yeah. everybody. Thank you so much, Colonel West. It was an extreme honor for us. Thank you. Keep me in prayer. Yes, sir. Thank you for joining us tonight. We are fighting for the rights of parents worldwide. If you want to help support our podcast and for us to continue this mission, please join us at patreon.com slash dad talk today. You will find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Clout Hub, Parlor, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, the podcast app, Google, Apple Podcasts. We're a little bit of everywhere. And guys, every time you like and subscribe, you help us continue this mission. Thank you, and we will see you next time.